Good evening, everybody. This evening's talk is about wise concentration. As some of you know, concentration plays quite a significant role in the Buddha's teaching. Actually, maybe all of you know that now since we've talked about it a bit today. It's one of what are called the seven factors of awakening. And those factors are mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's also one of what are called the five spiritual powers. And those are faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And when these powers are fully developed, they're really quite uh, important in through our practice, or as they're being fully developed. The Buddha commented that the practice of vipassana, the practice of insight uh, insight, uh, meditation, mindfulness-based insight meditation, without the support of samatha, without the support of concentration, is like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without having the protection of a bodyguard. So it's pretty important. We'll begin this evening's discussion with three Pali words. And as I mentioned earlier today, Pali is the language that the Buddha primarily taught in. These three words are sila, which was mentioned last night by Winnie, samadhi, and panya. And they translate into English as sila, virtue or ethical behavior, Samadhi as concentration, and Panya as wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many, many times about these three particular aspects of mind. These particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom, or virtue, concentration, and insight. They form the three branches of mental development that are essential to all forms and all schools of Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities, or Capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, what will lead us into insight practice. This deeply penetrative understanding that comes through the direct meditative experience of what are called the three liberating insights. That of anicca, another Pali word which translates as impermanence, the impermanent nature of all mental and 
physical phenomena. The second being dukkha, another Pali word that translates as unsatisfactoriness, or I particularly like that translation of it. The essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly and worldly mental and physical uh, phenomena, occurrences. And anatta, which translates as the impersonality or not-self nature, the impersonality of all the material and mental phenomena of existence. And these are the three profound insights that lead one to the final liberating wisdom. In the Buddha's words, as he often did when he taught, he starts with a question. And then he goes on to answer his question. So here's his question. If concentration, if samatha or samadhi is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers his question. The mind is developed. And on he goes. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds to his question. All greed is abandoned. And then he asks another. If insight is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds, wisdom is developed. And again, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? And he responds by saying, all ignorance is abandoned. And so, concentration, samatha, samadhi, meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular, alternating sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process and purification that comes through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, through our exploration of virtue or ethical behavior with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue deepen and as they mature, we come to understand through our own very direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on a deeper and more profound level, and what brings suffering, confusion, what brings dis-ease. Ethical discipline, ethical behavior is really the basis for developing samadhi, samatha, concentration. Samadhi is a Sanskrit word and samatha is a Pali word. And they refer not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of exceptional mental health and mental balance. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practice of sila, ethical discipline, affords us is the recognition of and seeing our self-identification 
in relationship to our attraction, our various attractions, which show up as greed, clinging, expectation, and attachment, and our various aversions, which show up as worry, resistance, anger, fear, confusion, and doubt. These habits of mind are the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and that lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly life. Samsara, as it's called uh, in the Buddhist teachings, which uh, is an aspect of, of the suffering or the unsatisfactoriness. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, that of recognizing ultimate reality, consequently keeping us from awakening, keeping us from liberation of the heart and mind. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and all physical phenomena, people, mountains, trees, galaxies, California, Iraq, (laughs) dogs, thoughts, rain, snow, feelings, one's aging body, New York, sunshine, I'm not going to name it all, (laughs) your favorite restaurant, (laughs) American Airlines, etc., 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 (laughs) are understood, are regarded as being without substantial, sustaining essence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we need to purify the mental cloudiness, to part the veil, to untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, each of which are rooted in mindfulness. In speaking to one of his chief disciples, Ananda, the Buddha uh, has a conversation with him, and Ananda asks the Buddha a question, and the Buddha answers it. Ananda says, What is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And the Buddha responds, Skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, 
joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its purpose. Knowledge, knowledge and vision of things of, as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of liberation from suffering. And in speaking to his monks and nuns directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Just as the Buddha did, we need to learn directly from our own experience, and often from some of our most difficult experiences, and sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that the purification of the mind and heart is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samatha concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reining the mind in from all of its myriad distractions and then learning how to focus it which is what we've begun doing today. So we come back again and again and again to the very simple present so that our mental and physical energy isn't being used up, isn't being usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. And so, in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or deflect the influence of raga, the Pali word that's literally translated as unwholesome passion. And it's very often used synonymously with greed, craving, attachment, and clinging, which is really the core cause 
of our human suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked, with the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or emotion that's arisen, or will be aware of a provocative sense input, but will allow these to roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or drench the mind with aversion. A similar image often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or water rolling off the feathers of a duck. The Vasudhimagga, which is a profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a number of very uh, graphic metaphors to describe the process of this development and the act of concentration. And one of these metaphors uh, that I particularly relate to because of my own experience with making pottery is this. And even if you've never made a pottery on a potter's wheel, you may have seen someone doing it, or at least heard about it. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed, focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the potter's wheel. Then the potter, with the continued focus of a clear, concentrated, and relaxed attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. So, quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration with the mind, the heart, learning to move into a very focused experience of deepening concentration. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind, a concentrated mind, 
It brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, and calm. Quite an energizing, refreshing, and potentially beautiful experience. Because our our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, of concentration, I think that it would be uh, helpful for us to begin exploring and learning a bit about the basis, the process, and also the fruits of concentration. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, and equanimity, they can't grow when the unwholesome states of mind of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. (coughs) Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation object or subject, such as the sensations of the in and the out breath at the nostrils, at the anapana spot, or maybe the rising and the falling movement of the breath in the belly, And if you're anxious, worried, or filled with expectation during the process, calm and joy will be prevented from arising. Worry and expectation enslave us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be willing to let go of thought, meaning to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing to cut through thoughts, so to say. Even thoughts that might seem to be so important in the moment. And it's very important to note here that this is not about kicking out thought. It's not about booting out thoughts. Booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention. A clarity of intention and seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or lost in something other than what is intended. So it's a very different attitude than aversion to thought. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step 
of the practice of developing concentration. Why? Because the mind can get lost in myriad, many, many mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions over and over again, thinking that whatever it is, is really, really important. During a three-month retreat that I sat quite a number of years ago that was devoted to the development of concentration, uh, I had a particular experience that I'd like to share with you. For the first week or so of this retreat, every day after lunch, I would uh, make myself a fancy cup of tea. I would take two or three uh, different loose teas and mix them in a tea ball, uh, mix them up together, uh, and have my, make my fancy cup of tea. And it seemed as though it was really a very important and seemingly very necessary treat that I needed, that I wanted. Towards uh, the end of that, uh, that week, I noticed that... Um, there was a box of tea bags sitting on the counter that was one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. And it had been sitting there uh, all along, but the mind just had not at all connected with it uh, with any kind of clarity up until that particular moment. So the thought came, do I really need this fancy tea? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need. Is this, is this really important? Well, the answer came, no. Pretty quick, it came, no. It's not important. It's just merely habitual distraction. So, from that day forward, I made myself a simple cup of tea with the tea bag and drank it with a lot of pleasure. Enjoyed it a lot. What happened after this what was really, is what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of this three-month retreat, the question, is this really important, would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and thought patterns. Is this really important? And the answer almost always, if not after a while, pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously was no. And so I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. Took a while to get to that point, though. (laughs) So again, the development of A wholesome concentration requires of us that we have some depth of insight and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs uh, through this process of developing concentration and mindfulness is that the mind, the heart, are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed and aversion, lethargy, restlessness, doubt, 
all of these what are that are classically called hindrances in these Buddhist teachings. Classically, the development of concentration, and for some people, at some point, jhana, a very deep, absorbed concentration, is de- uh, described as the purification of the mind. And again, as the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens all of these hindrances, seriously weakens these unwholesome states of mind. In the moments when calm and joy and tranquility and blissful happiness, contentment, peace and equanimity, these fruits of concentration practice, when, they clear, when these wholesome states clearly manifest, unwholesome states are temporarily completely eliminated. And they're also weakened in the long run, particularly as our concentration develops and deepens. So, taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of a growing, deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that can hinder the development of concentration and also hinder the blossoming of understanding, hinder the blossoming of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, applying the attention, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object, And as I think I mentioned earlier today, this word is vitaka in Pali. And then with the establishment of the mind or the establishment of the attention on the object, such as the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath at the nostrils, at the anapanaspat, at your touching point, this eventually eliminates dullness, sleepiness, stiffness. The sustained application of the mind, a continuous sustained attention on the object such as a breath, as the breath. The Pali word for this is vichara. This eventually, temporarily eliminates uncertainty, doubt within the practice and weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. A deeply concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest, a kind of bright happiness and elation in the mind, resulting from the developing purity of heart and mind. The Pali word for this is piti. This brings a very delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention, such as the breath. 
and with the developing uh, of a deepening concentration resulting in various degrees and manifestations of PT, this physical phenomena mostly, uh, ill will is temporarily inhibited, temporarily gone. And the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, a kind of sweet, easeful happiness, the Pali word for this is sukha, which in its maturity isn't a pleasant bodily feeling, but a blissful, contented mental feeling. Along the way of its development, it is also felt um, in the body. And when this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration, restlessness, agitation, regret, and worry are temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration, and the Pali word for this is ikagata. When this occurs to varying degrees during the developing stages of concentration and mindfulness, this one-pointed focus of attention is the experience of a clear, strong, and pervasive energetic sense of centeredness, balance, and equanimity. And during this time, sensuous desire for anything is is, is at bay, is inhibited. As concentration develops and moves along, the states that corrupt the natural purity and luminosity of the mind and heart, when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, which also include clinging and self-identification to pleasant and other habitual states of mind and body, when at least some of these have been let go of, temporarily abandoned, relinquished, at that time, one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in connection to one's own practice. There's this wonderful sense of confidence that comes forth. When this confidence arises, the mind and heart often experience great inspiration, enthusiasm, and appreciation connected to the teachings, to the practice community, and to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, we begin to directly, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and the taste of a wholesome elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, 
is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, and this part very important, without any attachment, without any personal identification in those moments, the body eventually becomes very tranquil, very, very at ease. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are uh, connected with gladness and joy, those are removed. They actually disappear with the calm and the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. Because when we experience tranquility, we feel a terrifically serene, wonderful pleasure. When pleasure is felt without any attachment, again, very important, without any attachment, not so easy, and without any identification in those moments, self-identification, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non-analytical, sustained mindful presence. So another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings this serene pleasure of tranquility which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and heart are very strong. And so... In this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or deflect raga, this unwholesome passion that I already mentioned. Not allowing the unwholesome states to get stuck, to embed themselves in the mind, but just roll off the mind. The nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types or three levels, we could say, of concentration that can develop and that can also serve our insight practice. And the first of these is what's in Pali called kanika samadhi. Translates as momentary concentration. And this is the development and a growing maturity in one's ability to focus on one object after another object after another object, one by one by one. The development of our capacity to connect with clearly with one object, followed by another and another, moment by moment. 
the cultivation of our capacity for momentary concentration is really essential for insight practice, really essential for vipassana practice. The second type of concentration is called excess concentration, or sometimes called neighborhood concentration. And the Pali word is upachara samadhi. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or jhana concentration. And neighborhood concentration can be accessed or re-accessed and used for our insight practice. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and depth of absorption concentration, but it's not at all an absorbed concentration, meaning it doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does absorption concentration. With this access concentration, the mind is very, very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains quite a depth of intensity uh, similar to the absorbed concentration. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very helpful and very useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type of concentration is absorption concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. When the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. At this time, when that's happening, unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened in the long run, though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It's really only through vipassana, through insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will very naturally take place in our insight practice, our vipassana practice, particularly momentary concentration, especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less attachment, and less identification, but rather with a very interested, open-hearted, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and excess concentration takes a very special and concerted effort that is not everyone's inclination or everyone's interest. Sometimes it's of interest, but it may not be uh, of one's inclination. And it's not absolutely necessary for a potential, potentially liberating uh, vipassana, insight practice, to unfold. The achievement of jhana, the achievement of jhana concentration, may require many, many months or maybe many, many years of a single-pointed practice, meditating for many hours each day. 
And this certainly may not be practical for some people. For others, it might be possible and it might be worthwhile in moving towards the discoveries that lie in wait for us as we apply the telescope of samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no me, no I, no self, as it's called, while at the same time being very clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what's occurring, and not making something out of the experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. In light of this, I'd like to share a a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme austere practices and finding that in fact they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it's said that the Buddha, or the, he wasn't a Buddha yet, the Bodhisatta, Siddhartha Gautama, asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. And he remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when all the men in the community rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual to mark the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, young six-year-old Siddhartha, quite spontaneously and naturally sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. Observing the scene unfolding before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children can sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil, He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and of the oxen as they were working. He he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hoofs and the cowbells rolling on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts 
of the men as they were working. And he also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs, worms, and broken bodies of the mice that were left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. And all of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the sweet-smelling rose apple tree, open-heartedly experiencing this scene before him, and in his mind and heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away. As he silently sat quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, taking this all in without prejudice, without attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a very deep state of concentration through mindfulness of breathing, experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure, a joyful happiness that wasn't born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seated. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha, could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with an energy and a sureness that this was, in fact, a footstep on the path, a footstep on the path to liberation. And so he resolved to sit quietly and to press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha-to-be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change, actually, in his relationship to suffering and in his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and no longer to be banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, 
anguish and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind, wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, banished, released, or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them or by trying to live through them, by stealing ourselves, by hardening oneself, and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships, or by struggling, by, by trying really hard to let go of painful mind states related to extreme austere practices, or by trying to lose one's self, in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in, for instance, mental fantasies or various situations and activities, various relationships that created hardship or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. So in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did, And thinking just as he did, that these situations, fantasies, activities, or relationships would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness, and ease into your life. Potentially, a certain degree of mental strength may be gained and probably is gained with this kind of activity in our life. But the light at the end of the tunnel, the light of liberation, can never be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities that this would really never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, with a heart, that's secluded, that's free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, and doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated, and mindful presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's really a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, 
judgment, anger, and confusion. That, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness and the ease of a heart, a mind, that's awakened, a heart, a mind, that's liberated. In remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and for him, jhana, is a footstep on the path to awakening, a really important and useful footstep, footstep on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed in one of his discourses to his student Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under the Bodhi tree. And he goes on uh, speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana, and that with these pleasurable abidings, and in the Buddha's words here, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning equanimity, he tells Sakaka that he systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that now very famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind an undisturbed, purified mind, is something that young Siddhartha kind of wandered into. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to push away or to run from. And this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most all of us. We often have a mind made up and often really absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we for sure know isn't true. And we also have a mind made up about what we must have, what we must not have, 
in order to be happy, and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up. A mind that in fact clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment that we're in, keeping us in conflict, keeping us from shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is really essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, the mind, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both our internal and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, the teachings and practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical or virtuous behavior or conduct. The current of samadhi, the teachings and practice of concentration. And the current of panya, the teaching and practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of life. Carry us to the other side, to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed mind. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and is essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle, that keeps us from seeing it, so that we recognize the nature of things, so that we recognize ultimate reality and awaken out of this sleepy cloud of delusion. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with a deep kindness and patience. Each of these wholesome and beautiful qualities will, without a doubt, serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And, without a doubt, are some of the most basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from.
And closing the talk this evening with a Mary Oliver poem that speaks to this evening's topic uh, in her quite unique and beautiful way. And in relationship to this evening's topic, in a somewhat oblique and yet uh, very moving way. The poem is a little bit out of season here in the New England winter. Uh, But I would encourage us, each of us, uh, to make the shift internally to a more spring-like environment, at least in our mind, as we listen to her poem. She calls it Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring. And finally I heard him among the first leaves when I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness. And that's when it happened. When I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure. But it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters and all the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen. Everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. 